Welcome to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host Mason S. With me as always is Travis K. This podcast is not meant to replace meeting, sponsorship, step work, or service. This is meant to be just another tool in your recovery toolbox. Our guests are here to share their experience, strength, and hope with recovery through Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you for joining us. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mason S. With me driving in the truck tonight because he couldn't get here in time is Travis K. Yeah, yeah. And also filling in for Travis, we got Chase P. with us tonight. Evening, folks. All right, so tonight we got Mr. Kermit O. that's going to share... His experience with Narcotics Anonymous, Kermit. Uh, how you doing, brother? I'm fantastic. <laughs> well, we can't thank you enough for coming on here and doing this, man. It, it means a lot to us. So, thank you for that. You're more than welcome. All right, so let's get started with your uh, clean date and where you attend meetings at your home group. Yep. Uh, my name's Kermit. And I'm an addict, and I'm clean today through the grace of God and Narcotics Anonymous. My clean date is September 6, 1981, which means in about 90 days, I'll be celebrating 42 years clean in Narcotics Anonymous. Come on. Yeah. And, uh, one, 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 one said, that may not impress you, but it impresses the shit out of me. <laughs> I couldn't get 41 days. I got 41 years, 42 years. Um, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, where they had those lovely uh, race riot crap going on with the KKK marching down the street, singing Jews won't replace us. And I thought, why would I want to replace you, you dumb redneck motherfucker? Um, <laughs> and uh, my home group, we were on the top floor of a church, and it, we called it Addicts in the Belfry of Narcotics Anonymous. You know, when you're crazy, you got bats in your belfry. So we got addicts in our belfry. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And it's a good solid meeting. Uh, four members, two members have forty plus years. Two members have thirty plus years, and a couple of fives and twos. So that's pretty healthy meeting. Yeah. So there's more clean time in my home group than there is in the whole area. Let's put that. <laughs> no doubt. Yep. So when I hear you say, "What eighty-two? So you were eighty-one. 81 September 81 pre-basic text pre-basic text white book five IPs and chips we didn't have coins cat we didn't have we didn't have coins and we didn't have uh uh key tags uh, a friend of mine Shaby from uh Richmond she moved out to I can't remember where it was Montana or somewhere out there and she was the first one to make medallions and she ended up giving the Die to the World Service Office um, about uh, 83, 84, something like that. So my first coin and my friend Larry had to go, you know, reach out to her to get one. He couldn't get here. So he drove two hours to this meeting where another guy, Richard, grabbed it from him and drove another half hour to my home group to give me the coin. <laughs> so. so did you get clean in Virginia? Yes, I did. Yep. I tried for two years to get clean. They sent me to AA in Charlottesville because that's all the connections they had. The old-timer AA lady, Betty Randolph, she's passed. Um, she worked at the treatment center, 
And uh, she said to me, there's this thing called Narcotics Anonymous. It's in California. That's all she knew about NA. There was maybe three, four meetings in the whole state. And by the time I surrendered, I didn't surrender. <laughs> I just gave up for the third time. Um, I was sent to a treatment center two, three hours away at the beach where they'd started that meeting like six months before I got there. It was the Monday Night Recovery Group of Narcotics Anonymous. That was the first NA meeting I ever went to. So how far how far was the drive to that meeting? Three hours. Three hours. Yep. You know, people listening to this have no idea how fortunate we are to be able to. Well, now we have Zoom too, so I mean, you can. There's literally hit a meeting anywhere, but you know, pre basic text back in Virginia, back in the early '80s, you're talking about three hours to hit a meeting. Well, here's here's the rest of it. Um, in 1983, I met my first NA sponsor, and he hadn't got my sponsor yet, but he he confronted me about where I was going for recovery, and I, I made a decision to only go to the NA. And uh, my home group was Junks and Drunks, which is where we were at. You know, We were all powerless over drugs. You know, There was no disease concept in the early, even when the basic text was written. People who wrote your basic text barely knew what that meant. You know, there's a handful in the committee that knew what it meant, but most of the people who showed up to do the work were, because we've been going to AA for years and just changing the word alcohol to drugs. So my home group Monday, we started a Wednesday meeting, I think, or it was Wednesday we started a Monday meeting, but Monday was Junks and Drunks in Norfolk. Tuesday was Star of the City Catholic Church, which was about 40-minute drive from my house in Norfolk. Wednesday, came back to home group. Thursday, I drove 30 minutes across through a tunnel to Portsmouth where this guy Jeff was sitting with a guitar at Portsmouth Psych trying to start a meeting called Freebird and that meeting gets like 100, 150 people a night now um, but if I didn't show up with two people he didn't have a meeting wow. Friday, we, Friday we went back to the beach to 40th and Pacific to the Howe group and then Saturday and Sunday we went through a tunnel to Hampton and that was another 35 minute drive something like that that's how you went to NA. It's like getting a car. <laughs> <laughs> um, when did you notice that that changed for you when NA meetings started to become more readily available in your in your part in your neck of the woods? Well, I moved from Norfolk to Newport News, which was through, through that tunnel, um, and they had had one, two, three meetings a week for, for a little while. We started one at the AA clubhouse, which didn't work because everybody wanted to talk about their sobriety. Um, and uh, they started popping up eh, every four to six months. We'd get another meeting or so. Um, but there was no concept of, yeah, we need a meeting every night. It was just, you know, it just happened. Um, yeah. And yeah. And NA was basically white when I got here in Virginia, at least in lower Virginia, up in DC, that's a different story, but, um, bikers, um, and, uh, the, um, we started, we got a bid for the Virginia convention, seventh Virginia convention, and we started having dances and when all the black guys, real, you know, the brothers and sisters realized they could dance and party, the rooms just blew up. It was a big explosion of recovery in the black community. When I went to the World Convention in 1985, I, I, um, we actually 
back then they, the the host cities actually had to put the money together to do it. There wasn't any like world convention board or anything like that. It was just, you know, we would, we would have a, a bid meeting at the end of the, in the middle of the convention and each place that wanted it would, you know, put their presentation up and, um, that year DC had a bid, Virginia had a bid, Pennsylvania had a bid, a couple other places. And, uh, DC put together a, um, mini convention to raise funds for their world convention bid. And of course we all came because that's the way it is. You know, the people yeah. on the other side all come and participate, you know? Yeah. And that Saturday night, we, we were kind of jokingly, we called ourselves ECVC, which is East Coast Vigilante Committee. We keep, <laughs> we keep what we have only with vigilantes. Right? <laughs> and we sat up and came up with the 24 rules and regulations of being a purist. And my little friend, Jimmy D from Trenton was sitting in the back row. We didn't know it at the time, but he was taking notes. And about a month later at the next event, which I he he had come out he had come out with a purple bandana and then he came out with this little thing called purest news volume one number one and it was a manifesto it said in writing everything that we believe that you know we drive two hours rather than go to a local aa meeting you know to support another meeting we had an na sponsor had an na sponsor you know some of it was tongue-in-cheek we're being a little silly but most of it was what we believed in and that pamphlet went around the world and it, it, it infiltrated the whole fellowship. Yeah. Um, he came out a second one, ODOP, which is one disease, one program. Yeah. So, yeah. And a lot and, of that stuff is still being shared today, you know. Yep. And Bo said something, Bo Sewell, Bo asked, you know, everybody knows him anyways. And yeah. uh, this is between all of us, so who cares? Um, and Bo said to me, you know, if we hadn't made a stand for NA only, we might've been another fly by night, like Synanon or Daytop or something else that came and went. Yeah. And what do you and, think, what do you think the basic text, how did that play a part in us being able to stay together as a fellowship was that was for me, that, that was, was the, huge, right? That was the major solidifying event in Narcotics Anonymous, was the writing of the basic text. And, you know, just recently, I'm getting more information on this. Bo was, you know, he said when he went out to California, all the guys there, all the old timers there were all jailbirds and they were all AANA people. And they looked down their nose at, at newcomers. You know, they didn't have the same mindset we had. And uh, when he was... Bo went to the, he had, they had seven meetings a week in Atlanta and he had like five years clean and he went to the San Francisco world convention. I think it was like 78 or something like that. And, uh, and you know, he got there, he said he was real, he was real humble. He said, hey, nice weather, nice convention. Who's writing our book? <laughs> that's what he went on a mission, right. To find out. And after like five minutes, he met every mover and shaker. Cause there's only a hundred people at the fucking convention. Um, and uh, he met Jimmy, and then he met Greg Pierce. Um, and Greg was at the center of power then. Um, he was the president of the parent service organization, which is kind of like the manager, you know, the president of the board that directs the World Service Office. So Greg um, Greg was the only one trying to get anything done, and he had written a dope fiend letter saying, the book's coming out, you got to send your stuff in, and he got no input, zero, mm. from the entire fellowship of our office. <laughs> 
And Bo said to him, who can write on this book? And he said, any addict. And he said, I'm an addict. I can write. And they bonded and they spent the whole weekend together. And then Bo went to Greg's house in L.A. And then he flew home and he sent him a postcard at Christmas time. Says, send my love to Lois of the kids. Guess who bought a typewriter? <laughs> that typewriter was the beginning of your basic text, basically, you know. And he, his shop was right next to the Rising Sun Clubhouse, so he'd have meetings there and people start writing. And then, you know, he went to the World Business Meeting and they elected him chairman of World Lit with a mandate to write a book. Yeah. They <laughs> prayed every, you know, the amazing thing about that is they prayed every time they wrote, right? And they asked God to relieve him of the bondage. I'm sure Greg wrote the prayer, but God, relieve us of the bondage of self. Make us servants of your will and grant us a bond of selflessness that this be your work and not ours so that no addict seeking recovery need die from the horrors of addiction. That book's been translated in some 40 languages. It's in 70 countries and everywhere it goes, addicts get stay clean. That's a hell of a book. <laughs> you know, That's a hell of a book, right? You think about it. Hey, do you, are you familiar with the story of of the writing of the traditions with gr the phone call with Greg and Bo? Would you share that story? Sure, I have a picture of it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not at my desk. I could have held up the picture. You'd love it. <laughs> so they had, you know, they had, you know, they had like work sessions whenever a problem came up, and they'd like solution it. You know, they all throw out ideas, and so you know, somebody said well, we can get them a plane ticket, and somebody said this, and then somebody said, well. Why don't you just have a phone call? No. Uh, okay. Greg was in Oregon. He had moved from LA to Oregon and uh, they were in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where the gray book or rough draft was being written. And Greg had written the 12 traditions of narcotics anonymous. His wife, Lois edited everything Greg wrote. So she's, you know, she's a real piece of our history that nobody really mentions. Um, the, uh, the phone call, you know, Bo, stood behind this woman who was a fast typist and she held the phone to his ear. And then after about an hour, somebody put a chair under his ass and he was there for four hours. And he said, I watched the traditions pour off page after page after page. When it was done, they gave them to the board of trustees who were the guardians of the traditions. That's another one of my hackles. Um, and um, to group conscience and they gave it back with nary a change. It's the least edited part of your basic text. The way it came out of Greg's mind that day to that woman that she typed it was how you read it today. That's pretty incredible, man, to think Isn't about. It? And yeah. it's such a beautiful chapter too, the way that it's wrote and Yep. Man. Greg said something real interesting to me one day. He said, you know, uh, desire to use that doesn't make you a member. That's just the bare minimum. <laughs> That's the bare minimum you have to have. He said, you're a member when you act like one. Mm. Right. So I got a question for you um, in sure. regards to starting out. You know, I think we're, the ones of us who got clean more recently are pretty blessed, you know, with all the forms of literature and, you know, uh -huh. the step working guides, um, you know, sure. the actual flat book, the back to the basics packet, all that. What sure. did working steps look, look like for you early on? Um, what was the avenue you were able to do that? And has it changed over time or do you kind of stick with what you started with or have you uh, adopted the new, the you'll new love literature? It. You'll love this. My sponsee, Antoinette B. from uh, Fredericksburg, wrote back um, 
back to the basics. Greg was her grand sponsor. Um, I would write out a questionnaire for people, you know, I was like, just describe each word, you know, what is we, what is admitted, what is, you know, and that's how we work the first three steps. Basically, we, you know, we all use the big book for the fourth step. Um, in the early mid eighties, Mr. Bill, who was the jeweler for NA, um, and uh, he he's turned his business over to his kids. But Mr. Bill and I um, were, you know, serious NA collectors. Joseph, my first NA sponsor, I said to him, where's the NA uh, uh, archives? And he looked at me and said, you're the archives, save everything. <laughs> so I did. Um, but Vito was walking down the stairs with some paperwork. And, we, you know, we said, well, what's that, Vito? And he said, oh, this is some step work that Jimmy gave to us in the 70s to work the steps. So, of course, I said, can we make copies? He said, sure. We brought it to the front desk and making some copies, gave it back. Mr. Bill started working it with all his sponsees, and I put it up in a fucking glass case. <laughs> that was stupid. <laughs> I missed out on like five years of working steps. So when they were doing the step writing guide, guess what? <laughs> they said, you guys all have step things that you've worked on. Would you please send them in? So I sent in Jimmy's step guide. Right. And they write back to me and say, well, we need a copyright release. And he was dead. I was like, okay, I'll release it. <laughs> so if you look at the, you know, the questions, they're pretty similar for that, from that sponsor, sponsor worksheet. That's what that's called. And it's all on all the, you know, NA sites around the place. But that was the real working the step stuff. But for the rest of it, it was all big book stuff. We just followed the formula in, in there. So, when the literature um, conference was going on, did did you participate in one of those, or didn't you meet Bo or something down at one of the conventions? Or no, I met him at the second Georgia convention, which was like 1982, and he spoke to me for an hour. I was so fucking impressed. I had one year clean, and this is the chairman of the World Literature Committee. He's talking to me for an hour. You know, like oh my god. Um, my mentor, Larry North, went to all those things from Virginia. My wife had gotten clean in 81 as well. She relapsed for seven years. But in 81, she had a friend who um, dad owned a printing company. And, you know, when her best friend said, oh, do you need copies of that? And she said, well, it would help us. So she came back with like 20 copies of the gray book. So the people in Montgomery, Alabama did a lot of work on that as well. Um, if you read in the one of the stories, there's a guy from uh, Huntsville, and he said some people came from uh, uh, not Atlanta, it's a suburb of Atlanta where Bo lived, and you know some friends came and brought us information about NA and stuff like that. Bill Brooks, he's passed away, um, and so they were all in that connection working on the book. I got it. I never got a gray book. I got a white copy. That was the first thing I saw. I don't know why Larry didn't get me a copy, how that got fucked up, but it never happened. Yeah. Which they said, they get, set out, they had people calling all over the world to find any NA members they could find. They call like a, you know, places in Ireland and other places. And um, they sent books to everywhere they could find. So I don't know why one didn't come to Charlottesville. Our area was every meeting west of Richmond, which means if you take the state of Virginia and you cut a line in the middle, everything on the left side was our area service, which was one meeting in each town. 
one meeting in Charlottesville, one in Waynesboro over the mountain for me, Harrisonburg, the next town over, and uh, Roanoke, two hours south, and Winchester, two hours north. That's pretty interesting. You mentioned Bill Brooks, and for us that's in this neck of the woods, uh, Bill Brooks is very influential to us because we're all in his sponsorship tree. He was oh, actually nice. <laughs> he was actually my sponsor sponsor before he passed away. And um yeah, which is we pretty had, interesting. We had dinner with him in uh in Atlanta before he spoke. That was the last time I saw him. So yeah. And my wife knew him when from when he got first got clean. All right. So you know we uh we could we could do the whole podcast just on history uh, and, and all that. Whatever, but you can also ask for more covered questions too. Oh like, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that's what I was. That's what I was going to get to. We kind of want to hear your story too, and and um, and your experience through coming through the fellowship, uh, your own personal story. Because I had the opportunity to hear you speak on a Zoom meeting the other night, and I I think that's something that. Uh, very important too, not just what you witnessed, but what you went through yourself. So if you want to start with some of that, um, go ahead. (sighs) Um, you know, since you know, my clean date, you know, I obviously got clean, (laughs) you know, my issue was with the word surrender. I didn't understand it at all. I, it was a foreign concept to me. I, I was an extreme people pleaser. If you got within a block of me, I knew what I was going to say to you to make you like me. And um, the, uh, the so I had no concept of what they were talking about. And and treatment did two things right. One was you know right a fourth step. Uh, it was a first step. <laughs> I got high, got trouble on seventy two pages both sides. And hearing an NA speaker and the guy was tough, motorcycle motherfucker. He helped start the Phoenix Motorcycle Club in my living room, um, actually my upstairs at my house, which is a 12-step narcotics anonymous based motorcycle gang. Um, and uh, he uh, he had been through 12 treatment centers, state-run psychiatric hospitals, really bad places. You don't want to get in these places. Western state, Eastern state, Western state. They told him, if you come back here again, we're going to put you on the other side of the fence where you never come out. He had 40 white chips. This guy tried to get clean 40 times. I'm a three time loser, right? Are you kidding me? (laughs) 40 times. He finished his talk and he sat down. And at the end of the meeting, they called him up to the front of the room and they gave him his one year medallion. I said, a year, that's forever, you know? If that crazy son of a bitch, you know? Billy Eason died with like 30 years clean. He got he, he was he, he all tatted up. His, his girlfriend had a tattoo place, and they started opening tattoo parlors. And then, because he did NA conventions, they started doing tattoo conventions at Madison Square Garden. Wow. <laughs> this guy was bringing down 100K a pop with this shit. I'm sitting up at night in fucking Alabama, and the guy goes, "Here we are at the Paris uh, Tattoo Convention, and uh, Mr. Billy Eason." I'm like, "What the fuck are you doing in Paris?" I'm like, holy shit! You know, putting on an event where you gotta give him like fucking fifty grand just to rent the place. He, uh, you know, 
I, I surrendered the first night out because I wanted to use really bad. And I told my girlfriend the truth and she got me to a meeting and it was an AA meeting and they were not thrilled to see addicts in their AA meetings in 1981. They had 40, 50 people in the room all going, my name is Benny. I'm an alcoholic. And we go, hi, Benny. I said, my name is Kermit and I'm a drug addict. And three people said hello. Mm. There was a hush. I didn't care. You know, something was changing and round Robin, everybody gets a chance to speak, came back to me and, you know, I told him what was going on, and this dumbass cowboy sitting next to me had cowboy boots, a hat, and redneck. <laughs> he had the answer. I just this idiot smile, and he says, "Just don't get high today." I went, "What? You mean until I go to bed?" He said, "Yeah." So what did I think of it? I went to bed that night clean, and I woke up the next morning free. And I'm not saying how to desire that. You, I. I've had some barn burning desires, but I knew I never had to use again the rest of my life one day at a time in 12 step meetings. And, um, I made a second surrender the next morning and it's the second half of step one. It's the part we always miss. My life was none of my business. (laughs) Every time I made my life, my business, I wound up in blue pajamas (laughs) on a good day. Right. Uh, I, um, went to every meeting they had they gave me a starter kit for me and wesley my dealer had gotten clean before me and he had like you know i think when we started and i had like 30 whatever four months and he had like nine <laughs> and uh i went uh, they, they sent me this letter from this this lady called i dropped a couple flyers off you know one at uva hospital one at the radio station i don't remember where else and uh, I get this call. This guy says, I'm Dr. So-and-so from the sixth floor psychiatric ward of the University of Virginia. I'm like, okay. So we've got this 15-year-old girl up here. She's been eating speed and trying to commit suicide. We don't know what to say to her anymore. Would you come and talk to her? <laughs> I was the big guru four months later, but I was the H&I committee. So I took two people on 12-step call. I just showed up and they gave us a room, two chairs. You know, when you've been using for fucking 15 years, I... I told this poor young girl every scumming, rotten, disgusting thing I'd ever done in my whole life. And in the last five minutes, I said, and I have four months clean and I go to N.A. And she was like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> our stories weren't the same, but they were the same, right? Her name was Jennifer. She's having trouble with the one day at a time. You know, she'd go a few days, eat some speed. After one of the meetings, somebody's walking her home and... I said, Jennifer, if you can't do this shit one day at a time, why don't you not use from tonight's meeting to tomorrow night's meeting? And Jennifer said, okay. <laughs> and this January, I gave Jennifer her medallion for 41 years clean of narcotics. Wow. Yeah. We didn't have literature. I took the how, who, what, how, why pamphlet and made 100 copies because I was the literature committee. <laughs> At nine months clean, I, I I realized I wanted to move forward in these steps. No, I didn't. I was just jealous of other people. <laughs> Everybody's walking around going, I'm turning over, man. I'm making a decision. I'm giving it to God. <laughs> they didn't want to work a four-step. <laughs> they just want to talk good shit about step three, right? I want to be cool. So I start looking for God's will and everything. <laughs> be a red light. Okay. God's will, because there's going to be an accident up ahead, and He's saving my life. Like, <laughs> napkin would fall off, but it's a sign from God. What I tell sponsors: if you want to know where God is, He's right on the other side of willingness. Hmm. When I'm willing, that the doors open. It's when I'm willing that the magic happens. Right? This guy, Father Dan Egan, we call him the Junkie Priest, used to say, "God writes straight with crooked lines." <laughs> 
I love that shit. I was just telling that to my sponsor in Amsterdam. <laughs> we may not go the complete straight way, left, right, but when we get there, that's where we're supposed to be. And, you know, it's in other words, trust the process. So I get in Patty's car. I still don't have a car, <laughs> my girlfriend's car. And I, there was a letter from the sheriff's department. I knew they wanted me to come speak. <laughs> it was a warrant for my arrest, writing checks, knowing there's no funds in the account. Those checks got lost for a year, you know, and I'm mad, right? I'm like, you know, nine, you know, nine months clean, started to end a, you know, whole life's changed. So I look up in the sky, I said, all right, God, what do you want me to do about this one? And the Beatles song, Let It Be, came up. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> I mean, I've heard from the almighty Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> that's as close to let go and let God as you can get, right? There will be an answer, let it be. Um, so that's what I did. I let go and let God, right? And, you know, this stuff may sound simple to you, but to a newcomer, it makes it's probably the first time they ever heard how you do this, right? Let go and let God as you hand the problem to God, you act as if he's got it already taken care of and you just do the next right thing and you don't worry about it mm. until the night before court. <laughs> yeah. Then the next day I was a nervous wreck. I got dressed up in a nice suit, you know, and had my little big book under my arm and I went to court. <laughs> I love what Richard Pryor says. I went there for justice and that's what I found. Just us. <laughs> All addicts. <laughs> they have great stories. Here, have a white book. Shut up. <laughs> They call my name. I'm doing the long walk. God grab me because it's the judge. <laughs> you know the judge. The one who said, if I see you here in this court, I'm going to try you to the fullest extent of law. That judge. Mm. And I stood up for this guy with all the willingness of a newcomer. And he said, Mr. Osterman, you want to tell us something about this check? I said, well, you're on it. He said, hold it. Calls the lawyer over for the Safeway supermarket chain. He says, counselor, uh, do you recognize this checks are your old? And the lawyer said, well, yes, your honor. He said, well, you can't prosecute this man in a criminal case for a check that's your old. He said, no. He said, you can prosecute him in a civil suit and get your money back unless Mr. Osterman, you're here to pay what you owe. <laughs> what do you think? Yes, your honor. That's what I'm here to do. He said, pay the man $32. Case dismissed. Boom. I didn't get to open my mouth. I was a newcomer. I was going to be, yes, I broke into that cigarette machine at the train station when I, was, I threw the rocks off the bridge <laughs> I ain't going over there. I was going to admit every crime I ever fucking <laughs> <laughs> The difference between my will and God's will is results. Mm. When it's my will, the results are good for me, nobody else, and they peter out. When it's God's will, the results are good for me and everybody else. It's like a piece in a puzzle. It fits just right. The disease of addiction talks loud and rational. It's always saying, this is what we got to do. This is what we have to do. This is what we better do. This is what we ought to do. And God talks quietly and suggestively. God's always saying stuff like, you might not want to do that. <laughs> you might want to try this, you know? And we talk about listening for the still, quiet voice. And that's part of the reason we do step work, so we can get our loud fucking voice out of our head, and we can hear the still, quiet voice, right? Hmm. Um, God has five answers. <laughs> yes, no, wait. You've got to be kidding. <laughs> and if you must... <laughs> He'll let you have it, right? Uh, 11 years clean. I had a codependent meltdown. I lost my house, my wife, my business. Oh, my God. She put my three dogs to sleep, my children. I had an inheritance, a business building I lost. Uh, uh, and um, I, I owe the IRS $150,000 in a year of depression. Newcomers, keep coming back. It's better. <laughs> <laughs> 
all that shit made me do inner child work, you know? And, uh, oh, God, my family. <laughs> Here's my family theme song. You might catch it. Let's see if I can get my thing working. Doodly doo. Doodly doo. <laughs> I tell people, creaky, kooky, spooky, I could have that shit. My family, mm-mm. My father was a big cigar smoking lawyer. He pushed the bicycle and said pedal, and that was the only life information he gave me. Not how to do homework, not how to open a checking account, not how to talk to women, nothing. My mother was a depressive, and when my father left, she let the cats and dogs go around the house. We had 29 cats and three dogs, and at the end, nobody cleaned up after him, and she would just pour white powder on these piles. And of course, me and my brother were away at schools, and... Um, my father remarried a younger woman, my stepmom, and she was hip. She ran away from her dad in Long Island who was trying to molest her, and she ended up in Harlem and became friends with Wilson Pickett and the Staple Singers and all the soul people from the 70s. And They were driving me and Barney back from private school, and they pulled out a joint and handed it back to me, and I got stoned with my parents for the first time. And my stepmother and I got the giggles and we fell out on the front lawn and we bonded. And she started looking out for this poor kid in this crazy family. And she dressed me in cool clothes and, you know, because clothes my mother put me in guaranteed no girl would talk to me. And she gave me a little afro, which got bigger and bigger. Purple shirt, orange pants piece. <laughs> and um, I had brother Mikey, five-year-old boy, blonde-haired, happy kid. He had seven brothers and sisters who loved him. And Mikey was sitting in an apartment in the Bronx on the 13th floor and he heard a siren and he pushed on the screen and the screen fell out. And my brother, Mikey fell 13 floors and died. And my stepmother's first child, she was inconsolable. She cried and wept every day. And my father would give her a glass of liquor and say, drink this, you can get through the service. Drink this, you can get through the five, five days of people coming to the house. And she drank and she drank. She drank a gallon of vodka a day for the next 20 years. And ended up hemorrhaging and bleeding to death in an apartment in Queens because no one would get her for treatment one more time. Not before molesting me when I was 17. So, you know, that kind of, you know, you want to talk about defects of character. That's what I believe they really are, you know. The childhood trauma that was never healed. You know, I have Sponsy that some kid would give him candy so he could like play with his little penis. And he, he decided that he was a bad person and acted that way for the next 40 years until we worked a step. And he actually came to the truth of it. And I said to him, if a five-year-old kid came and told you that story, would you treat him as bad or would you love on him? And he said, yeah, I would love on him. You would talk to him about forgiveness and acceptance and peace and all that good stuff. Step nine's at the end for a really good reason. Well, actually, this whole thing is about humility, okay? And when I first heard about humility, I was like, oh, you talk quiet, look at your shoes. That's not humility. That's something completely different, right? Gandhi had humility, right? Gandhi went on a salt march with some of his buddies. They stopped eating salt. Everybody in India stopped eating British salt. Everybody in India stopped buying anything British. It would have crippled their economy. They picked up their bags and walked out. They couldn't get these guys out for 100 years. 
Mother Teresa went to Calcutta, India without a penny in her pocket. She built a hospice building where they take dying people off the street. They wash them and put them in bed so they can die with dignity. And she did that without a penny. Dr. King walked around America and spoke. Okay, he got shot. But he spoke. And a brother was president of the United States of America. I've shared this message live, not on Zoom, in England, France, Germany, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Holland, Belgium, Riga, Latvia, Kiev, Ukraine, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Turkey, Israel, Greece, South Africa, Iceland, Calcutta, India, 40 to 50 states, three provinces in Canada, Bermuda, Bahamas, Panama, and recently Egypt. I have a talk on YouTube that's downloaded 50,000 times. <laughs> I'm famous in an anonymous program. Woo! <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like it means something, right? doesn't mean anything, right? That's the miracle, you know, because all my life it had to mean something. You know, everything I did had to, you know, shine in somebody's fucking eyes. I don't care. You know, <laughs> the, uh, the nine steps at the end for a really good reason, okay? Because step nine means living in a way that it never happens again. Which means if you say, Mom, I'm sorry for not being there for you, guess what? You have to be there for her for the rest of her life. And I couldn't do that until I worked six and seven. I couldn't do that until I changed, you know? I had sponsors say, oh, no, I've been doing that all my life. I can't do that. I said, yeah, I shoot heroin. They go, what? I said, yeah, I shoot heroin. They said, no, you don't. Said, exactly. If God can stop me from sticking an eagle in my arm every day, he can clear any fucking character defect, period. Come on. That's small stuff. We, we work on character defects by trying to live in the opposite. If we're greedy, we learn to be generous. If we're fearful, we learn to walk in faith. And the only reason I knew what, what I needed healing was because I did an inventory and I shared it with my sponsor. And the only way I could do that was if I came in touch with a God inside of me. I got a call the other night, the other night, two years ago, I'd gone to a rheumatoid doctor for my joints, not these joints, <laughs> these other <laughs> joints, right? And they took blood at noon and the guy calls us at six o'clock on a Friday. I'm like, what the fuck? And he said, you need to go to the emergency room right now. I'm like, why? <laughs> like, I, you know, I answered no to all the COVID questions. He said, no, no, you have leukemia. You could die at any minute. You have no white blood cells in the middle of a pandemic. So my wife and I got in the car and we're driving to UVA hospital and she's like, you know, you don't have a living will. You, you need to tell me what you want me to do. I, I trust you. You got 30 years. And I don't sleep with newcomers today. <laughs> They'll break your heart every time. Don't, don't try. They don't know anything about commitment. Forget it. So, but, you know, I said to her, you know, I trust you with my life. So we kind of gave me something. And I thought for like a minute and I said, if I can't be of service to somebody, pull the plug. My whole life is about service, you know? I have sponsees in Amsterdam. I have sponsees in Turkey, two of them. I have a sponsee in Paris. I have sponsee, well, he's south of France now. I've got sponsee in Georgia. I've got sponsee in upstate, you know, New York, and one in Canada, you know, and probably seven to 10 here in Charlottesville. Um, one in Helsinki, Finland, but he hasn't called me in five years, so it doesn't count. But, uh, you know, my business, I sell comic books. I'm in fantasy for a living. <laughs> And I sell old comic books and it's my business. I can turn it on and off as I need it because recovery is much more important to me than anything else. Making that my highest ideal has given me everything I have. 
I've buried three sisters in the last three years, and they all died with recovery. One of them with 36 years, my sister, Juliet, who got clean right after me. My sister, Dee Dee, 14 years, she was going to AA and smoking pot. <laughs> she called Julie and go, the meeting was really good tonight. <laughs> she was like, call me like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm like, relax. She got to go to the meeting part. Let's, we'll work on that right now. And uh, my sister, Suzanne Sylvia, who was my stepsister, and she got most of my stepmother's alcoholism and craziness. Um, she, I had taken her to the East Coast in Connecticut and then to the world in uh, Atlanta and uh, Orlando. And she had just picked up her one-year medallion. She had a pituitary infection, so she was really big, large, and she got pneumonia. Didn't go to the doctor, and they found her wrapped in her bed sheet trying to get out of her bed because she couldn't breathe. Mm. my brother Barney my running partner he got AIDS like right after I got clean it was a fucking miracle that I didn't because we were sharing needles all the time he came in and out one of his outs he got AIDS and we buried him 30 years ago my baby brother Henry has 36 years he's a drug counselor my and uh, my oldest sister Georgette oldest is always the bitch right? has got 20 <laughs> years in Al-Anon yes <laughs> and during the leukemia guess who showed up for me my sister right um, the weird thing when, when he, they said I had leukemia, I didn't bat an eye. And part of me says I'm so used to fucking living in insanity and bizarre shit from my childhood that nothing phases me. But my belief is that I knew God had my back. I knew God had my back. My son Brian called me the other day and he said, Dad, you got to come to Tucson. I said, Why? He said, I'm going to be 50 years old. I was like, Oh my God. You want to feel old, have a kid that turns 50. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? <sighs> and he's sweet. He's a humble guy. He doesn't use, he doesn't want to use. And he, the only reason I like that is because NA taught his father how to be a human being. Before I came to NA, the only thing I could do is teach him how to use like a pig. So I'm grateful. You know, I don't have the heart to say no when NA asked me to do anything. My father remarried, and my stepmom, Zan's got 36 years clean. You know, everybody behind me got clean. Not because I pushed N.A. on them, because I lived it, and I was an example. And they knew who I was beforehand, and they knew who I was. I was talking with my son, you know, last month when I went to his birthday, and I said, Brian, I know you're not into this God stuff. And, you know, I said, but 41 years ago, your father was a junkie, you know? Right? He said, yeah. I said, something changed, and I became a person that travels the world and saves people's lives. There's somebody working out there, right? You know? I just want to let them know. I'll give you my closing song, and then if you have more questions, we can do that or wrap it up. Um, but I, I sing this song. I heard it when I met Bo that year in 82, and this woman, Gail from Nashville, wrote this song, and I said, oh, Gail, can I share that when I speak? She says, this is a gift from God. Pass it on. I said, okay. And uh, it sums up everything I believe about Narcotics Anonymous. And it goes like this. Someone introduced us somewhere. I don't remember now. I guess we started talking, but I don't know what about. Michael was from Florida, a way of NYC. And from that moment on, he became a friend to me. Well, I always used to see him, and sometimes we'd drop by. And every time he'd be alone, just trying to get high. The high was never high enough. He tried day after day, and helplessly I watched the spirit simply slip away. God, he used to sit and brag 
the money and the dope he had, but I just can't forget how sad Michael looked to me. Well, I like to say, I read the evening papers, they called it heart attack, but I know damn full and well he overdosed on smack. So now the party's over. They've gone and rented out his space. I never will quite forget the look on Michael's face. God, he used to sit and brag the money and the dope he had, but I just can't forget how sad Michael looked to me. Well, I'd like to say in closing, the story's sad but true. Somewhere lives a Michael and me and all of you, and I am deeply grateful for what I have today because I would be where he is if it wasn't for N.A. Thanks. Oh. <coughs> Man, what a story. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that um, you shared that about your family, too, and how a lot of them have come along, too. That's kind of, you know, very similar to my story. You know, I've I've got sisters and cousins and brother-in-laws, and all those people are clean now because my father decided to get clean. You know, we, we, when we were growing up, that's, that's all we knew is that you were going to find your hustle and you were going to get high and you would die that way or be locked up. And because one person decided to do something different, many people got clean because of it. And there's nothing like that, man. Um, You know, you know, right now in, uh, in Iran, there's like 150,000 NA members. <laughs> there are, one of the early NA members in Iran, his father was a mullah, which is they have the Ayatollah and underneath them five or six mullahs. And the mullah wrote a fatwa, a religious paper, saying that there was nothing in the 12 steps that violated Islam, and they got a pass across the whole country. They have meetings of 250 people a night in a park and the home group members stand at the edge of the circle and hand out literature to new people that show up. If you get clean, you affect 10 people in your circle. <laughs> God's dropped a love bomb in the middle of that country. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you before we go. I noticed you... Um, I, I was looking at your picture on Facebook and you had a shirt on. I, have you been to China? <sighs> China. <laughs> I sponsored a guy named Jeff T from um, Australia. Actually, Jeff was from India. His wife, Debs, was from Australia. And Jeff was living um, in Shanghai with Shanghai Sam, who's the guy that makes all the buttons and badges for World. and He's usually set up at the World Conventions and um, and, uh, they have the only NA meeting in the whole country of Japan in a city, the size of Manhattan, there was only one NA meeting and it was in English. Je um, Sam's wife, um, this lovely lady, uh, translated the literature to, into Chinese. So they have a website with all the Chinese literature all along it and a number and uh, Jeff actually got into one treatment center in in, uh, in Shanghai, and they actually it was a prison inside the prison. They kept the addicts away from all the prisoners. Fuck <laughs> that <laughs> Like, and uh, Jeff went in there <coughs> with another couple members, and 
was giving a presentation and the director showed up from for the prison and started questioning him and you know who are you and what's your relation who is the translator and what's your relationship to the translator and you have to go through the such and such committee and you know and i said writer kiss your ass letter saying oh thank you thank you we didn't know which way to go this is great you're sending us to the place and follow her direction but the uh they got a he got a call from this guy who had gone to Daytop in New York and Daytop's bullshit. It's, you know, it's like confrontational therapy, hot seat shit. Um, of course, none of those worked because they would, you know, they knew addicts had big ego, so they had to deflate your ego. And they knew if they could get them helping other addicts that they had some success. But at six months, they gave them all their drinking privileges. So. <laughs> So after two weeks with these idiots in New York, they take them to one AA meeting. They didn't take them to a single NA meeting in Manhattan where there's fucking 900 meetings a week. And uh, the guy writes to Jeff and said, you know, is there somebody who can come talk to us about NA? And I said, Jeff, write to World. He wrote to World. They sent him back in a letter a half an hour later, said, absolutely, we'll pay for you, another member and a translator to fly to Wuhan, which is like frying from Virginia to fucking Montana, right? And um, so they went there and the half the audience were addicts, the other half were counselors, and they did plays about NA. Like they did, you know, a, um, a speaker meeting, a topic meeting, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And at the end of the weekend, the group of addicts had gotten together, gotten a group name, and he hooked up the guy with the most clean time with somebody at the World Service Office that spoke Chinese to help him work the steps so he could work the steps with the other guys. And he wrote back to me, and I just wrote, job well done we were trying to get na in china for 20 fucking years right deb's left they got divorced deb's left to australia with the kids so of course jeff left with him and he came back oh he I, he showed me he sent me a picture of one guy and one girl oh two of the guys with money over there american guys put up the money for a, a clubhouse room for a year and handed it to the guy with the most clean time and they started an NA meeting in the city of Wuhan. And uh, Jeff sent me a picture with one guy and one girl picking up their one-year medallion in Chinese. Wow. And uh, Jeff came back like three years later. The guy sold the building, so they moved it into the treatment center, which I said, that's fucking great. And they said, yeah, but then they moved it into a restaurant where they all drink wine at the end of the meeting. Uh, he was so despondent. I was like, Jeff, we're planting seeds. We're planting seeds. We're planting seeds. And um, we had heard there was one woman who had been in prison 10 years, had the literature, and got out and started a meeting in the um, art district in Shanghai. And another guy who was working under Obama in, you know, in the, um, what's it call it, the, under the drug czar. And he, uh, he went to China for something and he went, he had an address for a meeting and it was in Chinese. They wrote it out and he just showed it to the driver and the guy took him over there and he's wandering around the town because nobody knew where it was. Finally found somebody, they sent him to a church and he knocks on the door and some, nothing happened. And somebody came around from the back and said, are you looking for NA? He said, yeah. And they took him in and they said, you're from America. Do you want us to speak in English? And he said, sure. And he sat in a Chinese narcotics knowledge meeting. And that was like, a year ago how cool man isn't it cool <clears throat> recovery can never die i have sponsors like they go is recovery the same in moscow as it is here i said dude addiction is addiction is addiction and recovery is recovery recovery the same basic text you read the same steps you work they work in you know in 
St. Petersburg. They work in South Africa. They work in Israel. They were, you know, I got a sponsor in Israel. I've had a sponsor in Israel for 20 years. So, yeah, I love these world people that say, I have a worldview. <laughs> Dude, I know more about what's going on in Istanbul today than you will ever know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kermit, man, we're, man, extremely grateful. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming on here. And, um, the last thing we usually wrap up with is, you know, there may be somebody out there tonight that's listening to this that's trying to get clean, somebody that's been clean for a while that's struggling. What is your message to that person? Oh, yeah. Willingness is the key. You know? And, you know, of course, 90 meetings in 90 days. I was an old timer, old timer meeting at uh, shit lots, you know, spiritually high in the land of the sky in Asheville, North Carolina, which, of course, if you take the acronym, it comes out of shit lots. Uh, and uh, they said, how many people in this room did 90 meetings in 90 days? And everybody raised their hand except one guy who had like 40 some odd years clean and he only had one meeting a week to go to. Everybody, it takes 90 days to build a habit. If you do the same thing for 90 days repetitively, you create a new habit. And the other is that puts you in a, you know, get a sponsor <laughs> and stop running the show. Thanks. All right, Carmen. Thank you. And thank everybody for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week, starting with a 12 week series, breaking down each of the 12 steps we'll have peter m from boston massachusetts on here next week and we will break down step one we will see you then thank you for joining us thank you for joining us on our living clean podcast this is another platform that we can share our message of recovery which is an addict any addict can stop using drugs lose the desire to use and find a new way to live join that no matter what club you can contact us through text the number is 931 three zero six nine three six four.